Thank you for listening to the Roundtable Consult, where we discuss political and social issues that matter to you from a spiritual, medical, and legal perspective. Join the conversation with your host, Attorney Sonia Madison and Dr. Mark Williams. Well, hello and welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I am your host, Sonia Madison, and I am joined by my neglectful but always funny co-host. I'm just kidding. Mark Williams, and you're on mute as you should be. And always <laughs> present. Your co-host who's always present. So <laughs> that should get some credit for that. <laughs> so before I get on my rant about this past week, do you want to good, good morning to you though? Good morning. <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Great. Oh, oh okay. That's Go why right I, ahead. I send the mic to you. The best I said before I get on my rant. Let Go me, ahead, rant. Hey, how, how you how you been doing? <laughs> I've been good. I've been anxious to hear your rant right now. Let's hear it. And I, I will say, I was starting this week off after such a good show. It was starting off well. I had a great sermon from my <laughs> pastor, Spiritual Refilling, went to see American Fiction, laughed, you know, really good movie. Then your favorite candidate comes on The Breakfast Club and my said, favorite candidate? Your favorite candidate, Nikki I'm Hayes. not running. <laughs> hence why you're not a candidate. But your favorite candidate gets on The Breakfast Club and says, so many you know, awful things. But let's start with the Texas has a right to disregard not only a federal order, but the Supreme Court of the United States and defined as it relates to the border over in Texas. To raise a wire. Yeah, not even just, but they're, they're adding more troops to protect their adding on of the wire. And Florida has come in and said, I'm going to also, thank you, DeSantis, bring in some of his troops to go and help Texas. So that's why I say here, this is to me, not, not only an example of why this person refuses to study the civil war based on her previous comment that it had nothing to do with slavery, but also the fact that she is going out promoting this idea that yes, states can defy again, federal and Supreme Court. I mean, no more checks and balances, which is what the civil war was meant to, to protect. But not only does she say this, then she goes on to say that Obama, President Obama, was the start of the political division. So let's ignore the birther movement that Trump you know, started. Let's ignore the history of political division that we've had in this country. But yeah, let's put it all on President Obama. And she said it in response to the question as to whether Kamala Harris should be a good president. So yeah, let's, let's make it clear she's making it about race. But if that wasn't enough, then she goes on to say- But wait, there's more. <laughs> Oh, this, is she, this is she the gift that keeps on giving for you guys. She goes on to say that the founders did not intend to oppress people based on race, despite the fact that the Constitution explicitly provided there were three-fifths of a person. So it'd be you, I mean, again, I will continue to call her the white supremacist sympathizer, but since she is your favorite candidate, why don't you defend the recklessness that she continues to see? Oh, trust me, I don't defend anything that she says, and I never will defend anything that she says, because a lot of it comes out as nonsense. I said, I do think that she would be a good leader. I think she has the temperament uh, for a good, to be a good leader, a, a good president. I think she has the temperament to be a good president. She probably has the good the experience to be a good president as well. Those things aside, I dislike her policies and and I dislike her her lack of command of history or her misinterpretation or re, re whitewashing of history. So, yeah, no, no, I would never vote for, her, of course. But uh, I do think that of the potential candidates that are in the Republican or at least that were in the Republican primary, she probably was the most reasonable candidate of all of them now now that being said none of them i think are reasonable candidates but she was the most the least of all the evils i guess so 
Well, and I don't understand how she makes a good leader. I mean, to me, if a good leader is ignoring history, if a good leader is pandering to white supremacy, if a good leader is continuing to spew out nonsense, I don't think that makes for a good leader. Well, it depends on who your followers are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> followers are racist. Hey, Hitler the, the, had Hitler well, was a great leader. He, he was. He would have been a great leader, I guess, <laughs> if he can mo- If you can motivate a group of people. To do the to accomplish a goal that you set, whether that goal is laudable or whether it's uh, expungible, whatever it may be, it's you just it makes you still a good leader. Doesn't mean make you a good person. Doesn't make you a person of ethics or a moral person. It just makes you a charismatic person who can actually reach out and motivate some people to accomplish a goal. I guess we'll, we'll agree disagree on that because that to me makes for a bad leader. <laughs> <laughs> if your leadership is hinged upon the oppression of other people, that to me does not make you a good now, leader. The oppression of other people, that's always still just a matter of interpretation. Now, uh, there are plenty of people who will say, and I don't think Black people are oppressed in this country. I think that they are restrained to some degree, but I wouldn't say that we're oppressed. And um, we have been oppressed as as a people from the from the inception of this country uh and before it was in uh, before the inception of this country we were oppressed people i think there are opportunities that are still now made available for us uh they are we are restricted no doubt but oppressed i wouldn't say oppressed necessarily how do you define oppressed <laughs> oppressed is is constrained beyond beyond the ability to escape so as long as there is a little hole, then, then, we're, then we're not oppressed. Then we try to say, okay, as long as there's a little more, even if you don't yeah. see it. You feel oppressed? Are you oppressed? Sonia, are you oppressed? If you're asking me personally. Successful, successful right. So if, 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 if you're asking me personally, yes, there have been obstacles that I've had to endure that other people who have not had the luxury of being black they did not have to endure and so to me those obstacles are meant to oppress me now whether i overcome the oppression or not yeah that just speaks to the power and the humility and and the resilience of my people but i'm not still be just because a slave is able to become it doesn't mean that there was no oppression as the, as being the slave it doesn't just depend so on I, that it also <laughs> depends on the presence of laws that actually prevent the oppression of people and there are we, still the presence of laws if you look at yeah. the electoral college the electoral college was built again on the concept of, of us being three-fifths of a person that continues to be something that is on the books there continues to be things on the books that hinders a lot of black people from being able to get housing loans there continues to hindrance be hindrance is not books. oppression though according to you to me i'm saying th- those are used to oppress people so then are you oppressed is the question that i asked before again, are I, you oppressed I, and i answered the question i have had to endure issues and obstacles that yes oppressed me but now just because i'm able to overcome it doesn't mean that i'm not neglecting the fact that they are still there and they are there for other people now it would be incumbent upon me to uh, use my story to uh, allow other people to find those holes as you say that allow you to get out of it but it doesn't change the fact that it's a hole whereas for other people it's more of a door a window a a whole backdrop of a space for them to walk through and there are plenty of white people in this country who have been more oppressed or hindered than you have and so you can't say if that you say so certainly there have been there have been there have been people there have been people in this country that have been hindered articulated. i know i know what your i know what your background was and the opportunities i'm asking you, you to articulate the white people that's that have been oppressed in this country this is okay. what i'm trying to this is what i'm trying to do <laughs> I, I know your you. background i know the privilege that you've had because i've enjoyed some of the same privileges with our own family and, and I know the opportunities that have been presented to you, they have not been presented to a lot of other poor white people. The biggest issue with this country, the biggest oppressive, uh, the biggest focus of oppression in this country is on poor people. Poverty is probably the biggest uh, identifier of those who will be oppressed. Now, in the past and for generations, Black people have been preferentially targeted to make up the lower social economic classes, hence the oppression that seemed like it was mostly focused at Black people. And granted, it was. But right now, we're living off the residue of the oppression that our people have enjoyed 
uh, or endured for for generations, definitely. But I can't say that we as a people are quote unquote oppressed uh, because there are far too many opportunities for us given. Uh, I can't say that I have been oppressed. I have been hindered. I have been slowed, but I have never been oppressed in this country. I have been unfairly treated, but I wouldn't say oppressed. Oppression, I think, is just a little too strong of a word for me. All right. Well, I've noticed you still did not identify any white people that have been oppressed, but let's move on to Fannie Willis. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't identified any black people who, who have been oppressed. Well, Fannie Willis. <laughs> um, so Fannie Willis is here as a Fulton County DA. And she is prosecuting former President Donald Trump and 18 of his allies over the 2020 election interference. Now, have you heard about the, the latest consolations affair? And how it started is um, so she's especially appointed three prosecutors to handle this case. And it's from my understanding, she went through a lot and several of them said no. But these three said yes. One is a black guy and two other are white. And so the black guy is, he, as he was handling this suit, he was going through a divorce. He was handling her suits, apparently. <laughs> going through a divorce. And in the midst of that divorce, um, his ex-wife, and it's nothing like a woman scoring, right, <laughs> is essentially saying, hey, he's using money to help fly Miss Willis around in, in these personal extravagant means because they have a relationship. Now, no way is she saying that this relationship is an affair that hindered her marriage or caused a dissolution of her marriage because they both agree with irreconcilable differences. But she has permitted the use of this to, again, bring out the salacious story. Now, that isn't to say that Miss Willis is off the hook because I will say you know, if I'm putting the legal hat on, there is nothing about this relationship that both parties have admitted to being in a relationship. They say it happened after he was appointed to this case, but they both admit that. Oh, they, they admitted to it? They are. They have admitted to the Oh, relationship. I didn't catch that part. Yeah, oh, they, okay. have, they have recently admitted. And it, it has been after the divorce has been settled. So the ex-wife did get what she get, what she wanted to by getting at the settlement and, and getting it all, you know, dissolved terms of the marriage and whatnot, but um, they have admitted it. And um, on a motion by one of the co-defendants, he's claiming that based on the relationship, they should dismiss the case um, because she's brought it under a means that should disqualify her from for pursuing it. And so it's basically ethics violation. Now, the legal hat, this relationship has nothing to do with the grand jury saying that there are facts that showed that he interfered with the election. And there are at least over 13 charges in which Donald Trump is being charged with. And so none of that is going to have any bearing on the relationship. Should she recuse herself? I, to me, it's not enough. I, I don't think it's enough to disqualify. And again, she's the Fulton County DA. I mean, she's responsible for bringing these types of cases. Um, and all she did, of course, is appoint those special prosecutors so they could be the one that's actually prosecuting it. But it's it's still, I mean, she's the Fulton County DA. It has to be on her to do it. And, and I will, again, give credit to Kemp because a lot of people have begged him to use this law that's a ridiculous law here in Georgia, but use this law to remove her from this position. And he's been very clear that he's not going to do that. Uh, so I appreciate that about him, but no, I don't think it. I don't think it should disqualify her. Yeah, no. I, I understood, or at least that even if she did recuse herself, if she did recuse herself, that there's not likely another prosecutor who would take this up, um, in, in the or DA that would take this up, and so if she wound up either one being removed from the case or she recused herself, the case basically goes away. And I'm sure that that's part of the strategy of Donald Trump and his allies there is to get her off the case. And then it just fades off into the sunset someplace. And he goes on to be this 47th president of the United States. <laughs> and then all the federal cases go away, too, after that. So see how magic works? I, I don't. I see how personal. It's just works. not black magic. See how <laughs> <laughs> hey, black magic. I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm really, really excited to be able to get into uh, the conversation with our guest today. Uh, this is someone you've invited onto the roundtable console, and I hope you'll introduce her. 
Yes, I will. For her name is Tiffany L. Burgess. She is a trained actress, writer, and producer. She's also extremely smart, smarter than you, Mark, if I say so myself. But she That's has earned her, <laughs> she earned her BS degree in biology from Hampton University, as well as a master of public health from Emory University here in Atlanta. And she has appeared on short stories such as Glitter and Gold, which was an award-winning short film that was produced by a rapper and actor Common. She's also appeared in commercials and web series, as well as ABC's The Wonder Years, which my cousin was in, so she may know her as well. And she is currently featured in the adaptation of the Broadway musical, The Color Purple as Olivia, which is Celie Sauter. But I will say her most important roles, at least for me, is not only being a member of Delta Sigma Theta sorority, but also being a fellow church member of mine. So please welcome to the roundtable, Tiffany L. Burgess. We can get her to show her camera so everyone can see her beautiful smile and to turn on the mic. <clears throat> she might be having some technical difficulties unless our producer is messing with her. <laughs> <I'm not. laughs> she probably did just like I usually do is tune out when you start talking. Oh, no, you listen so intensely. <laughs> yeah, you're like, whoa. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thank <laughs> you. Okay, there. So I want to start before Mark gets into his love of the film, The Color Purple. I wanted to start by getting your thoughts on some recent news that came out. So Issa Rae, who is also similar to yourself, a, a accomplished writer and producer, she expressed some consideration of producing her stories independently because when it comes to mainstream studios, she says, and she said this in Porter um, Digital Magazine, that you're seeing very clearly our stories are less of a priority. Mm -hmm. And I know she's had at least two of her stories canceled. Um, and she said she also uses the executives on the DEI, which is now the buzzword diversity of equity and conclusion. Um, have also been fired. So is do you share the sentiment? What is your experience and, and what are you seeing in the industry? I mean, she comes um, out the rip asking you like, <laughs> she's on a Barbara Walters <laughs> level. No, hello, how are you? Tell okay. us a little bit about yourself. What yeah. you? <laughs> Let's she get you knows me. She's my church family member. She knows Yeah, me. yeah. No, I, yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I definitely agree with what she's saying. I am one third of a film production company called Tyler Street Films with two other um, Hampton University alums. And my partners and I, Jack Manning III and Lawrence Law Walker, we're really committed to telling our stories and making sure that our voices are heard. So we're already in that indie, you know, uh, mindset. We, you know, have uh, had opportunities to talk with larger uh, studios and we're working with one now um, to try to pitch a, a television series. But at the end of the day, we also recognize that a lot of the, the work that needs to be done to tell our stories may um, need to go the indie route because our, as she said, I, I totally agree with her and I'm, I'm definitely an Issa Rae fan, but as she said, you notice that we took a lot of steps forward in 2020, George Floyd era. Now we already knew, I heard a lot of the conversation that was, uh, being had before I was brought on. So I have some thoughts around what was shared, but back to the question at hand, um, we already knew what was going on with, you know, with African-Americans in this country. But it's very interesting that once people were forced to sit down and actually watch it, it was in their faces. They couldn't escape it. They couldn't uh, act like they didn't see it. Um, they couldn't go to work and, you know, pretend like, you know, things were just, um, Hunky Dory, then it was like this big shift to promote um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and now the A, which is accessibility. Um, and I do think it's important, but I and I I think it needs to be continued. But what I find interesting is we took those steps forward, and then it's almost like after the post-COVID era, though COVID is still around, because I'm a public health professional by day. After the post-COVID era, we went back to old behaviors, right? Um, we went back to, in my opinion turning a blind eye to things, removing the D, um, DEI leadership that was placed in a lot of these big companies to make things equitable. And to her point, then it kind of shifts us as Black storytellers back to that mindset of, okay, then we just have to do it ourselves. We just have to fund it ourselves. We just have to find production companies with people who either get it and they're allies or they look like us. 
in order to really get our stories out there and get them heard. Are they doing us a favor by that, though? Maybe we should have been doing that all along, utilizing our own resources to tell our own stories and maintaining our own control of our products. We have been doing that, in yeah. my opinion. We're just looking for a little equity. I mean, to make money, uh, to, to make films rather cost, and not just film, television series, limited series, cost money, right? And so we've been doing that. I mean, we've gotten this far by doing that, by looking to work with our own, to look for folks who um, are allies, because I, I personally don't feel like, you look at the civil rights movement, um, nothing was just accomplished solely, solely on our own. We had to reach across the aisle, right? We had to have some folks who were allies, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like we've been doing that, but let's just be real. It costs money, a lot of money, and then the distribution and, and all of that to actually get it seen, um, you do, ideally, you would like to think that other folks in these bigger, larger organizations um, with influence would like to help you get your, your, you know, your, your imagery, your, your stories told on the big screen to help you um, make sure your voices are heard. But and I'm not saying that some aren't. I mean, I definitely think there are some folks uh, who are tuned in and recognize the importance of diversity in what's on television and what's on the big screen. I think there are several folks who get it. And then I think there are several folks who just don't, I hate to say it, but in my opinion, care. So once it's not in their face anymore, and it's not a hot button topic, though it's always been a part of our lives, I was like, this is not a hot topic. This has always been, this is this is our life. This is how we live. This is not, uh, oh, now I'm at home twiddling my thumbs. Let me pay attention to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and now let's make some changes. It's like, this has been going on for us. So um, it's a little frustrating. I was talking to a friend about it last night. We just came back from seeing Origin. I think everybody should see. Oh it. yes, I saw Origin. It was so good. It was so oh my good. gosh, <laughs> so good. Um, but you know, speaking, I feel like the color purple is an example of everything that you're saying because when we look at the original film, I mean, Steven Spielberg is someone who said, you know, I am going to use my influence and my resources to put this um, on the big screen to distribute it. And it, and I, I will say, I, I don't doubt that part of the reason why I became such a nominated film is because he used some of his contacts, his resources to ensure that it was out there and became mainstream. Um, but what I would like you to explain going back into the expense, because I know recently Oprah became under fire, even though I'm sure, again, it's been coming out that she had nothing to do with how you guys <laughs> um, were treated on set or what resources you had on set or or pay of, of some of these actresses, actresses. But that became a thing. Once Taraji P. Henson said that, you know, I've been doing this for so long and yet I'm still having to fight to to have the same type of earning capacity as some of my white counterparts. And then a lot of people use that to say, oh, Oprah is still mistreating people of her own. And then Danielle Brooks talked about how, yeah, we had to fight to get people um, to bring us a set versus they're telling us you got to come to set yourself. And, the, you know, <laughs> so, so kind of all my that, life yeah. I had to fight. So that's not, these sound bites, that's not, what they, they said and like set was fine like set was amazing energy it was beautiful it was full of like life and laughter and tears of like just look what we're doing I what's frustrating for me especially for in this social media area I've listened to era I've listened to everything they said what she said was when she was asked Taraji when she was asked and now let me just say I think there I totally agree with her I think there are pay and gender gap there's a, sorry, um, gender pay gaps in all industries, especially as a black woman. I'm black and I'm a woman. So then I feel like I deal with gender and race pay gaps. I know I do. Not feel like it. I do. So, and that's it across industries. Don't let Mark tell you you're not oppressed. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I will totally get into that too. I was like, so, um, and just because I refuse to acknowledge oppression or that we surmount the obstacles that are put in front of us doesn't mean that I'm not oppressed or that people don't want to oppress me as a black woman. But, with that being said, um, the, the, the gaps, the pay gaps are there, right, across all industries. 
I don't think it's, I think the issue is when she chose to talk about it because you're in the middle of promoting a film that's in theaters. Not that what she said, what she said was important. It was true, but it was when she chose to share it because people took it and ran with it and missed the entire message. The question was to Taraji, what did, did she consider uh, quitting acting at one point? She said yes, because of the pay issues and all of that. And she hadn't gotten a raise since Proud Mary, et cetera, et cetera. And she said something like, you know, I almost even had to walk away from the color purple. Now, things were fixed. She signed the contract. She played should. So the soundbite ran and ran. Oprah's one of four producers and she's not the studio. She was amazing. Oprah was amazing on set. Her energy was on set. Scott Sanders was on set. He's the other producer, but the other producers are Quincy Jones and Steven Spielberg, and none of them are Warner Brothers, right? So then you're dealing with also getting things in contact or not in contact straight with the, the studio, which was done. And so I hate, and we do this, we will come through and like a truck run each other down as soon as we hear a sound bite, instead of really just listening and taking a step back. What Danielle Brooks said was when they went to a rehearsal, I had to do rehearsals as well. She said something about their own dressing rooms during rehearsal. These were early on issues. This was not during shooting the film. This, these were rehearsals. I hadn't even started. When I was rehearsing, I had not started. I had not gone to my trailer yet. I had a beautiful trailer. I had I was flown first class at Savannah to shoot, stayed in a beautiful hotel, you know, with them. We're all in the lobby. So it's it's I hate that we do this because you don't see other people doing this with their films. They don't run their films into the ground while they're in the theater, which is it's color purple. I'm not saying just because I'm in it. It's an iconic film. And this version is amazing. But you will hear them talk about things either after the fact or in their internal groups and then work together to try to rectify. We will take one soundbite, run with it, and then use it as an excuse to run down our people or our product. It's insane to me. So she did not say all these issues that were people are making like bigger than life, they really weren't bigger than life. Like they really weren't what people are making them out to be. They are things that need to be addressed. And of course, again, you take that up with the studio, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you're brought a contract and you negotiate things in your contract and then you sign it and then you go and do your job, right? Like any other job. So I can complain about all sorts of jobs that I've had and things that could be, you know, efficiencies. But at the end of the day, when I'm there and I'm feeling the energy and I'm excited, whatever the job is, the end product is what I'm proud of. And I, I as a collective, you will never hear anyone who was on that set say they weren't proud of the end product and that the energy that was on set, especially when I was there most days, was phenomenal. So I, I, I want that to be the story that's told versus what I'm hearing. And I'm just like, and then after people are talking about it, I'm like, you have no clue what this whole, I'm still learning this industry, but you have no clue what it takes to be on this type of set and like the process that folks go through and signing contracts and et cetera. But you, I've just read some really like nasty things in general um, that just kind of disappointed me. Well, is it then um, unjust treatment? I guess we'll call it that way because one can define oppression as a cruel and unjust treatment. Isn't that then in the eye of the, the oppressed, the person who who's receiving the treatment determines whether it's just or unjust in their sight? Um, because you can look at, for example, Taraji, when she actually told her story, she she actually said it tearfully. I mean, it was you could see that she was bothered by that. And other people will look at her story and say, well, that's not cruel. That doesn't seem like it's unjust to me. I mean, you're crying about, I don't know how much you got paid for it, but likely millions of dollars, you know, it's kind of hard to look at someone who's getting paid millions of dollars to do this. And agreeably, it's agreed that it's not the same and it's not commensurate with what people of other races, other genders or whatever negotiate for themselves. Um, it's not on that same level. But one would be hard pressed to consider that cruel and unjust mm. treatment, especially um, when, especially when they're making nineteen dollars an hour. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I don't think, what I think is we have to be careful with deciding and determining what is unjust to people simply because of the amount of money or something like that, that we see them making. We don't have the, it's not, we don't have authority to say because you're making millions. And she wasn't, when she was tearful and talking about um, the pay gaps, if you notice, she brought up Benjamin Button and then some other films and said, that she hadn't had a raise initially since Proud Mary. She was not specifically talking about the color purple. Right, it's just right. that she was talking about it during the time of promoting the color purple. Mm -hmm. So people totally got, they zoned in and honed in on that, which, I mean, I can understand the, the confusion there. Um, and thank you for I making think, that clarification there. Yeah. Because that, that is, that, that is exact, precisely, I think, what happened there. Yeah, yeah. She, she talks about what Brad... Pitt made versus what she made and Benjamin Button and then just some other films and that she's been in the industry for a long time and just the overall pay gap and like the things that we have to fight for as people of color in the entertainment industry. And what I said also is she's so she's totally right, but then it's not just the entertainment industry. I think any of us who work in any field um, understand that there are gender and race pay gaps right, that need to be addressed. That's that equity that we're looking for. But to your point, um, I think we have to be careful to say, well, my oppression is more important or bigger than yours. You don't, we, we don't have that right. Simply because this person has 10 million um, for a film, you don't know what's coming out of her check to pay her bills, to pay her team, to pay, keep a roof over her head, to keep, you know, thinking for her to think about her future. She don't want to act till she's a hundred. You know what I mean? Like, she we it's not especially if you see that big streaming companies and and the the ceos of larger studios and things are just sitting and you know they could start working tomorrow you know what i mean versus her feeling like i'll have to keep working and keep working and keep working because she has pr she has all these folks that she that she's responsible she's a brand she's a business right so she has to pay her staff after you pay your staff, you also got to pay your bills. You got to pay your mortgage. You got to pay your light bill. You Do you notice, you know, we noticed a lot of celebrities, not just celebrities, but folks who we think have all this money. You'll look and see like a oh, house is in foreclosure or something like the property taxes issues and things like that. Or the, you know, the accountant stole this amount. I mean, there's a lot that goes into, I feel like being compassionate or showing empathy to folks, not simply because of what we think is in their bank account and what we see externally. And I think we have to be careful with that, with saying, well, she's not oppressed because she makes 10 million. You don't know what she brings home and also what goes out the door. Amen. And You're preaching to the choir right now. I, I'm just saying, <laughs> like, that that just gets under my skin, too, because you guys know by day I'm a public health professional. So I'm just like, come on, y'all. Like, the empathy is just lacking. And then it's lacking within our people. Like, we will, I don't like that, that we will turn and judge each other and then judge each other's, it's almost like, you know, oppression or what we are, what the person's fighting for. Um, and then I, and then turn a blind eye to when, how do I say this? What other people who don't look like us are, are doing, right? I, 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 I would like to see a more united front. This is a totally different point uh, when it comes to us my people, right? And at least what we present outwardly. Um, we may have a secret water cooler, secret Black people meeting, right? But what we put out to other folks needs to be united because other people do it. And we'll get out. We'll just tear each other apart. People are tearing her apart. They're tearing up her apart. They're pitting two Black women against each other. I'm like, why? And then it's, I look at who's posting it and it's us. Come on, y'all. Like, y'all are killing me. <laughs> so... Perhaps in a bucket. Well, before, before we talk about the film, I, I did want to ask one more industry question. Um, one of my also favorite actors is Eric Alexander, and she was on The Breakfast Club. Yeah. And they similarly asked her some of these questions about, okay, what is it that we as either Black people, as well as we as part of this industry of, of people who enjoy entertainment, should do so that we are at least dismantling some of these obstacles that there are hindering the way. And I got I kind of want to get your thoughts because I mean she talked about one, let's stop saying black film. Call it, you know, if you want to call it a film with a predominantly black past or, or whatever, but she said for some reason you say black film and instantly 
again, the, the country and even the world it puts it into this layer of it's not worth the millions or, or not mm -hmm. able to, to market as well. Um, and even, you know, they use 12 years of slave and they say when they market that overseas, that was a Brad Pitt in the, in the, in the you know, in the marketing pitch. And he came out and said, hey, no, don't do that. You know, I'm not the main character in this movie. Um, but one, it is your attempt to say, oh, this is a white film and it shouldn't be a black and white. It just should be a film. So she mentioned that, but she also really leaned into, I need my black actors to use their space, to use the opportunities that they are getting that a lot of black females or black actresses aren't getting to bring them up. And, and she said, for example, I mean, when you're thinking about your top actors, particularly your Black actors, you can intuitively say Will Smith, Denzel Washington, um, Samuel L. Jackson. Whereas when you ask about the Black actresses, and I mean, right now, maybe, maybe you'll say Zendaya, you know, she's biracial, but it, it's not as intuitively to, to spit it out. And mm. they asked her about what Viola Davis is like, Viola Davis is screaming the same thing Taraji is screaming. Like, yeah, I have the same pedigree as a Meryl Streep, but I'm not getting paid when Meryl Streep is getting paid. Um, and so I just want to get your thoughts on, on those solutions as well as other solutions that you feel would be important for us to lean into so that we can try to make strides while we also are asking for our white allies to do more. I definitely think she just, I mean, she's, it's, she's Erica Alexander. She's been in the industry forever. I, I have not, I'm still learning and I'm fairly new, but I'm, I'm old enough uh, just in as a person to have had some experiences uh, professionally where I feel like um, she's exactly right when it comes to marketing. Now we don't want to whitewash things, right? Like I haven't seen Oppenheimer. I heard it was a bit whitewashed by some friends who were not pleased with it. They said it didn't really get into how the atomic bomb really killed other people, you know, uh, people of color, et cetera. Um, but I feel like when it comes to marketing, we do have to be strategic. Now, Black film is a Black film, and we, and we know it when, we, when it comes out. But to her point, we don't have to market it as a Black film because there are themes typically that transcends race. The Color Purple is iconic to Black people. From 1985 to the Broadway musical that won Tony Awards and did beautifully, right, to the 2023 version, which is not a remake. It's actually the big screen version of the Broadway musical, right? It's a musical. So the, but in the majority of the, the actors are African-American and like you got some heavy hitters in the film, but it doesn't mean that the film's themes and the, the, just the, some of the imagery and just um, the overarching takeaways of forgiveness and redemption don't transcend race. I totally agree with her. It's not a Black film per se when it comes to the themes because that's a human thing. We, I mean, I mean, it's a human thing. So I feel like to her point, people will miss that or they may not see it because of thinking, well, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a Black film. Um, and I think, but you have to, you, it's a, it's a thin line, right? It's a fine line. I think Brad Pitt is Brad, Brad Pitt was right. Why go over there and basically erase the uh, main characters, Lupita and, and Youngos and uh, Chibatels? They put it. I mean, the film. I'm I'm one of those people that thought Twelve Years a Slave was brilliant, right? I am one of those who watch it a million times, um, and I get angry, and then I get emotional, but then I also see, you know, just the the fight and the power that we have as a people, right? Um, the, I always say this, you know, turning that trauma into triumph. And so there's so much that I take away from these type of films um, because we can't erase our history. There are folks who just want to act like, I don't want to see another Black trauma. Okay, well, Black trauma is real and slavery is real. Okay. And you erasing it and not want to confront it doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't mean we can get over it or surmount anything. You acting like it didn't exist doesn't help. So I get into those films and I, I feel like to Brad Pitt's point, that's unfair to go over there and act like he's the star of the film. He came in like towards the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it's like there's a line there because you want to market it so that it's something that speaks to people outside of just their race, their age, et cetera. But you also want to not white, whitewash it. So you have to really be thoughtful with how you're marketing it. Have, it's, it's nice to have a seat at the table, have some people at the table who look like us, 
that can help with strategic planning, the strategic management, the marketing piece, who can be at the table and be like, hey, that's not a good move. That's not a good look. Here's what we can do. I think that's one of the biggest things that we have to do is insert ourselves. Like you said, together, A, move is like a unit and on one accord, but also getting a seat at the table, bringing our voices to these, these tables and helping to, to make these changes, whether it's policy changes, whether it's uh, thinking about marketing, whether it's thinking about who's going to star in the film, right? Like Viola Davis is amazing in Fences with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis is, a, is amazing in a lot of different films that aren't just Black films, right? But I appreciate that someone gave her an opportunity to audition for a role that they might have initially envisioned as a white woman. Do you know what I mean? Like, we have to have those casting directors. We have to have, like, those folks, producers, um, just everybody who's a part of this big machine when you're putting together anything in the entertainment industry who are at the table like, you know what, let's reimagine that or no, I think this person would be great for it and push. You talked about Steven Spielberg earlier, but Quincy Jones pushed for Steven Spielberg to direct the original The Color Purple. Steven Spielberg said that himself at the premiere of This Color Purple back in December. He initially was like, don't you want a black person? I'm a white male. And he said, Quincy Jones was like, well, you did E.T. You're not an alien. And he said, he was like, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean and he was just like and I thought it was the dopest story because he was yeah, just yeah, like and yeah. Alex Walker was in the audience and he had her on set like almost every day so together you have all these folks working together right to make this masterpiece but we gotta start having seats at the table I'm not so sure that I agree uh, that, you know? that we need to not no no I agree with that but mm -hmm. I'm not so sure that I agree that we need to stop calling it a black film Okay. I think we need to elevate our expectation of what it means to have a black product. And that mm -hmm. means we ought to have to elevate the presentation of black products as well. Wait, wait. Okay. Let me wait. Okay, Mark. Now I want to just go on the record as saying, I feel like saying something is a black film doesn't mean that I see it as, as the, as I see the I'm quality. Too. I feel like the quality of there are a, a lot of black films, the quality is amazing. I'm fine if we call it a black film, but mm -hmm. we're thinking about broadly in the marketing piece to Eric Alexander's point, and I think Nia Long also said it, making sure that we make it clear that the message in the film can transcend race. But see, you're about to go into it. I feel like you're about to say something about our quality. <laughs> Be well, no, no Be I'm not saying that. I'm saying when you, <laughs> when you designate something as a black product, it carries with it so many different connotations with it. And, and what that means to the person to whom you're marketing it depends on what their experience has been. And so it could mean, if I say this is a black film, it could mean that it was it was paid for and produced and executive produced by black people or directed by a black person. It could mean that the cast is all black or predominantly black. It could mean that the content and the storyline deals with black issues. It could mean that the whole project itself was financed and it's intended for black audiences only. So there's so much that you can, you can derive from just saying, Hey, this is a black film and it can mean so many different things, to different people. Uh, to some people, it may mean that, Oh, well, I'm not going to white people. Some white people like may think, Hey, this is intended for black people. So I may not even go look at it. Tyler Perry built his wealth off of predominantly presenting a black product to a black audience. Mm -hmm. And now I think he's got like the largest studio movie motion picture studio in existence today. I, if I'm wrong on that, correct me. But, um, but he did that by marketing basically to black people. Mm -hmm. And then once, once he became successful marketing to black people, white people, the rest of the world started looking at him and say, like, how did he get all of the success? Never heard of this Tyler Perry. I was watching the Tyler Perry story. His, uh, his uh the documentary on his oh, ascension. On I, yeah, yeah, I forgot what the name of the uh what the what the name of the show Jackson's was. Baby, I think. I haven't yes, seen it. Exactly. I have seen it as well. It was it was interesting how, you know, once he once he aspired and, and it rose to all of this acclaim, people are like, have you heard of Tyler Perry? And you know, people in the industry, the quote unquote industry, the other industry, never heard of him. How did he get to this point? How did he get to this point? High level executives never heard of Tyler Perry because he was presenting a black 
product. He was mm. going on the Chitlin circuit, mm. as they called it, the Chitlin circuit, presenting these musicals that were quote unquote black musicals and they were marketed to black people. But there's still a ton of wealth that we can now achieve and, and attain by presenting a product that is for us, by us, and still be successful with it, and then uh, draw other people into it. We have so many different mechanisms today to actually market. You don't need a network. You can you can create a television series and market that thing on YouTube, and you can you can make millions just from doing that alone. So there are opportunities now for us to be able to present our works, whatever that, however we define our works, um, to the broad population of people and still make them successful without having to depend on other sources. No, I, mean, I, I will just say this again. I, of course, disagree with Mark on a lot. And this is one of those. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with saying it is a film produced by a Black director, or this is a film financed by a predominantly Black um, in, um, group of people. But if you're not going to say white film, then why are we saying Black film? Just say film. And, mm -hmm. and to me, one of the things that American fiction hits on is, hey, what if I don't want to go all the way from a grassroots, target my people? What if I want to write about something that is universal and, and want to be able to have a studio like a Warner Brothers come in and say, yeah, I like this, but in order for me to market this, I have to call it a Black film. You're, you're immediately then hindering this person's ability to say something that is universal to a lot of people that a lot of people could understand and enjoy. And so this idea that, I'm sorry, Black people, you have to start at the bottom and go around this chitlin circuit in order to get the same kind of notoriety as a Steven Spielberg, I, I just find that unfair. Um, you know, just just off that, you know, initially. And I'm again, kudos to Tyler Perry for doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But don't get me wrong, if he had an easier way to hit to get to Warner Brothers, I don't doubt that he would have taken that route as well. But go ahead, Tiffany. I'm sorry. So, you know, you're both right, in my opinion. I think what I agree with Mark about the most is about our spending power. Like we have phenomenal spending power. We're talking about the black dollar. And if you think about if we all went and supported the Color Purple, um, American Fiction, Origin, right? How how much money those films would bring in. Like we're not waiting for them to come to the digital platforms. We are going to the theater to see them. Now, with that being said, um, I do feel like there are times where people do call a film or refer to a film as a white film, um, certain films. Right. Like I have I have talked to people and been like, did you see that? Did you see X, Y, and Z? Uh, who was in that? Is that one? It was a, that was a white thing. I didn't see it. You know what I mean? Being very honest about it. Um, but I you to your point. But um, so I feel like uh to your point, we shouldn't. I, I see both sides. Like we shouldn't have to market something or claim, you know, say something's a black film. But also, I there's a sense of pride that is in me when something is a black film, right? And I think if people just elevate their minds and be like, I don't whether it's a black film or a predominantly uh, white film, et cetera. If there's a message, or if I enjoy the entertainment and enjoy the acting that's in this film, I'm gonna go and support it. Like, I think it's just, I mean, it's entertainment, right? I just, I think the issue is there's a lack of equity. There's a lack of BIPOC voices. And a lot of people are tired of looking at majority white films. They want our stories told and they want to hear our voices. And I, that's what Origin talks about as far as just, it gets deep into the caste system and this idea of racism versus caste. And then um, just, uh Oh, it's, it's so deep for those who haven't seen it. And then The Color Purple, of course, goes into just the sisterhood aspect, but also redemption and forgiveness and watching this woman find her voice. And then I've also seen American Fiction, which gets into uh, our stories and how we present our stories and um, why do we have to present our stories and, 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 you know, a certain way for them to be received. 
right? Um, when he, I don't want to tell the movie, but when he confirm, conforms and he's doing it to be, you know, he's doing it to prove a point, he's, but also to, yeah, yeah. to be, and it's actually received well. And like it's proving his point of this is foolish. Like, why do I have to shuck and jive and, and write in this manner, a certain manner, because I'm a black author to get things like well-received and to get garner, you know, awards versus just telling the story that he wants to tell. And then it gets into like his private life and what is going on with his family, some family dynamics. So all three films, in my opinion, are strong films that have strong black leads that black people should go see. <laughs> but I also feel like it's a, these are films that I would love for folks who don't look like us to run to support. I would love for it. I will say that in the past, and I think generations, maybe two, three generations before for me, there were opportunities in order to be able to have opportunities as Black people, to be able to get those kinds of finances and to get the attention to make something successful. Yes, sometimes they had to pander. They had to sometimes compromise on, you know, what roles they would play, what they could say, how we could write it. Um, that was because we didn't have the money then. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and they controlled all of the levers of pro production. But now we have the money as a general group of people, as Black people, we have the money. And mm -hmm. we have the ability to control all the levers of production, even on a smaller level, with even with YouTube, as I was saying. We have the ability to, to produce every level, lever, pull every lever of production. So we don't have to pander anymore. And because we now that we don't have to do all of these things, we're going to lose the pride. We think we should put to the side the pride of saying that this is a black film. Yes, it's a black film. I still have people who look me up and come see me in my office just because they want to support a black doctor. Mm -hmm. They want to support a black business. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't really. And, and there's a lot of people who still have black pride. And, and I'm grateful for that as well. Uh, <clears throat> but there are a lot of people who who go see a movie and have no idea that the person behind it was a black person mm -hmm. and, or don't go see his film. But if they had found out that that person was a black person, they were the ones pulling the levers of production behind there, then they would have gone and supported it just because they want to be supportive of their people. So no, I don't have a problem with calling it black film. I don't have a problem designating calling it a black business. I'm proud for it to be a black business. I will say that I did have a, uh, and I can say this because she said it publicly, but I had um, country music artists, really profound, pronounced, uh, renowned a black country music artist. She she saw me in the audience. She was like, y'all, this is my doctor. He saved my life. This black ENT. And I'm like mm -hmm. the only black person in the audience because she's a country music singer. And I got really uncomfortable when she specified that I was a black ENT. Mm -hmm. And um, and and I thought about it. I said, why are you uncomfortable about being called a black ENT? Mm -hmm. She obviously was not, especially on her platform, was not... Um, Mickey Guyton. I knew you know. it was Mickey Guyton. It's only like I'm from Nashville, <laughs> so I was, I, I'm like I'm from Nashville. There's only really one black female that country artist. That and, is, and, I, and I want him to tell this story, but I know you have a hard yeah. time. I just want to yeah. make sure but you talk about Color Purple just briefly. Um, I want you to also talk about your books and what you're doing as an author. Yeah. So with Color Purple, um, do tell tell us again what you feel like the film is about, and and I want you to address some of the controversy, particularly for men that are saying, "Oh, it's about it's bashing men or it's promoting this lesbian type story." Yeah, no, the Color Purple, in my opinion, is more about watching this woman find her voice and really experience love, and it's not. I mean, it's 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 based on a Pulitzer Prize winning book. But I'm also aware that The Color Purple is not without controversy. I mean, the book was banned at one point, right? People want to boycott the 1986 Oscars. They had 11 nominations, didn't win one. So it's like, it's it's historically known to be difficult to digest, but it's a necessary story and it's a beautiful story. It's beautifully written, it's beautifully depicted on film and on stage. And it's about taking away, to me, the takeaway rather, is this woman experiencing love for the first time and finding her voice, right? And, and then there's these other things of sisterhood, forgiveness, faith, and redemption. 
And the redemption that you see with Mista, who's beautifully played by Coleman Domingo, um, is, is to me, you see how he shifts, like, you know, and, and, and shifts from uh, towards the end, his behavior, his mindset. And then you watch Steely and her forgiveness, right? Um, with Mr. And then it also gets into kind of like the generational curses of Mr. His father and what he tried to also pass down to Harpo. It's not about bashing, in my opinion, black men. Um, it's really just focusing on this particular relationship and these intertwined folks from Sophia to Celie to um, Suge and watching these women, right, really step into their power. That's the takeaway for me. It's when people get into the lesbian piece, I'm like, well, did you not read the book? Like, <laughs> did you not even see the kiss in the 1985 version? And I think it's less about the exploration of sexuality, in my opinion, and just the first time that she actually felt loved. I, I agree. That's what I took away from it. The first time she really, in her, you know, in her body, in her mind and spirit, felt loved. And if you can take away the, you know, we want to over-sexualize everything, and not get into the deeper uh, meaning of, of something. To me, when you watch how it is portrayed in both versions, but especially the 2023 version, I think it really speaks to the, the, the first time that she felt like someone cared about her, someone loved her, someone saw her, someone heard her, right? And that person just happened to be a woman. And it happened to be Shug, and it went deeper than that because of even how she and Shug were kind of pitted against each other early on. You know what I mean? So I think if folks would get out of their heads and their way and actually just watch the film or read the book and watch the film, right, um, you would see that there's so much more there than just these surface level themes that folks are, some folks are throwing out there. Lucky for me, I have heard a lot of people love it. I have been, you know, that's been a blessing. But for those who are, um, there's where there's some trepidation to watching it, I would challenge them to open up their minds and be open to these additional things that may have them thinking about it from, from just all these various perspectives. And tell us about your children's book and where we can get it. Oh, yeah. So I've written three children's books, Skin Like Minds, about colorism, loosely based on just my life. I have a, a fair-skinned African-American mother. I'm dark-skinned and just some things that I struggled with growing up um, when it comes to self-esteem and how instrumental she was and my faith was and um, really recognizing that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right, out of the word. Um, and so Skin Like Mine, uh, The Adventures of Junior and Baby Brother, Spencer's Special Gift, and then Decisions, 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 Decisions. Really, this is my first book that um, I feel like it's for a little bit older children um, and focuses on this young Black boy who is trying to decide what he wants to be when he grows up. I feel like our children especially are kind of put in this box. It's like, what do you want to be with you, when you grow up? And you only have one answer to give. And I'm an example. Um, the book is based on Stanley Autry, and he's an example of a black man who um, his story is really very a very powerful story that he did not grow up privileged, if you want to say oppressed. Mark, he wasn't. He, <laughs> he grew up um, in public housing in North Carolina, but he he he's a bootstrap kind of guy that went to Hampton with me, and he went from he saw a path. He played basketball at a high, I mean, basketball, Lord. He played football at a high level at Hampton and then went from playing football and uh, to being an engineer. And then from engineering was like, I enjoy entertainment. So then he, and he's an actor. And then he also is a franchisee. And he was like, why do we make our children think they have to choose one thing when you can actually, with hard work and with faith and dedication and working together, like Mark was saying, as Black folk and as you have said, opening the doors for one another, you can actually achieve a lot of great things at a high level. And we don't really see that. So when we talk about Black men, because we feel like there's nothing positive out there, and there's so many positive, uh, I feel like, uh, stories of, of Black men like Stanley who are doing phenomenal things. That was the point of writing this book. So little Black children, but especially black, black boys, could read that book and feel like they could be anything that they want to be and be more than one thing and look at the back of the book and see a black man who's doing that currently. Um, so all three are everywhere, Barnes and Noble, 
Um, Skin Like Mine is in the actual Barnes & Noble store in Buckhead here in Atlanta. Um, Amazon, I think you can go on walmart.com, target.com and find um, at least Skin Like Mine. Um, but the books, if you want to go to amazon.com, they're all there under my, my name, Tiffany L. Burgess. We definitely have to have you back on, Tiffany. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy talking to you guys. And then, Mark, I have sinus issues. And I was like, a black male ENT? Yeah, a black ENT. <laughs> this is black ENT I'm happy to see you. Like, wait, I've had, I've, I need to talk to Mark. I've had He's in Nashville. I'm Nashville. Oh, we do have to. I have to come back. I definitely. so enjoy talking to you guys and hearing you guys talk about Nikki Haley. An oppression. <laughs> all right. We're going to come back on and we'll talk about all of that. Too, please, so. <laughs> please. Sonia was hitting some of those things that I've been thinking. I was like, oh, I, I can't take myself off mute. And I'm not supposed to say anything yet. Oh, thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you guys for yes. having me. Good. Take okay. care. So um, to our audience, I know we're out of time, but hopefully you guys have enjoyed this as much as I know I have. It's always great to bash Mark here and there, but also <laughs> some informative information. But you can catch us every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time right here on Facebook. Also catch a repeat of this episode on YouTube as well as your favorite Apple podcast platform. And do catch some of our other episodes um, as well as Star Radio. I, I, some reason to keep forgetting, but also catch us on Star Radio. Thank you. Until next Saturday, have a great week. This has been another episode of the Roundtable Consult. Listen to this or other episodes at your convenience on your favorite podcast directory or listening app. Or catch us live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern at facebook.com forward slash roundtable consult. Tune in live and join the conversation.